Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, we're going to get started. We're, this session is actually getting recorded, so we all have to remember to speak into the mic. And at the end, when there are questions, um, you'll all have to speak into a mic that will be provided. Uh, so we just all have to keep reminding ourselves of that. But anyway, um, this session is called uh, Archival Adventures in Small Repositories. And it's a session that focuses on a project of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in um, Philadelphia. And the project has a long, complicated name, the Hidden Collections Initiative for Pennsylvania Small Archival Repositories. We just call it the Small Repositories Project for short. And the goal of the project is, um, I see some people that I know want to come to this session, and they're walking around looking like they don't know where they're going. I'm trying to flag them in here. <laughs> Tell those people that come. <laughs> so, oh, they're talking. Anyway, um, the project focuses on, uh, or the goal of the project is to uncover the often hidden collections, archival collections in the many small, uh, often volunteer-run uh, historical repositories in the Philadelphia area. And my name is Jack McCarthy. I'm the director of the project, and I'm going to give a quick, like, 10-minute uh, overview of the project, and then I'm going to hand it over to Celia Kaust-Ellenbogen, who is the senior project. Uh, can you close that door? Thanks. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Celia Kaust-Ellenbogen, who's the um, senior project surveyor on the project, and she will get into the, some of the details of it, the methodologies and the findings. And then we're going to turn it over to uh, Erica Harmon. Uh, she's from Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia, which is one of the participating organizations in the project. There's 130 organizations that have been participating in the project to date. Uh, there will be more. And uh, she's going to give the perspective of uh, a participating organization and, and uh, how that um, how their involvement worked out and how it benefited them. And then depending on uh, how much time we have and, and the interest of the group, uh, Celia might come back and give a short presentation on some tips for managing uh, archival collections for organizations that do not have professional archival staff, so some best practices advice. Uh, we may or may not have time for that. And then we've allowed time at the end for questions and discussion. So there'll be plenty of time for that as well. So I suggest that you hold your questions unless you have some burning issue that needs to be addressed right away if you hold your questions until um, the end of the session. So um, the this is the goal of the project. It's essentially to make better known, more accessible to researchers, the uh, hidden collections in the many small uh, repositories in the Philadelphia area, historical societies, historic sites, and small museums. Um, mainly volunteer run, but not always volunteer run. And the project is funded by grants from the Mellon Foundation. And uh, there are four of us that work on the project exclusively. You'll hear from two of us today. Um, and the um, primary objectives that we have to reach that goal of bringing these collections to light are, uh, one, we want to create uh, an online directory of all the small archival repositories in the Philadelphia area. 
uh, and I'll talk about what I mean by the five-county Philadelphia area in a minute. Um, we survey their archival collections and create finding aids to these collections, and then we put these finding aids online in a searchable database that's publicly uh, accessible. And then we publicize the findings and of the project to the archival and history communities like we're doing today. So those are our primary objectives. And then we also have uh, a secondary objective, and that is to create a, a community of practice among these small repositories, uh, creating a network of support and communication. A lot of these places are sort of under the radar, off the grid, um, not really connected to the historical or archival profession, working in isolation. So we try to create this community and um, bring them together and sort of collectively raise the level of stewardship that these places can provide for their collections. So that's not our primary objective, but we're, we try to do that to the extent that we can within our other uh, priorities. So this is the five-county Philadelphia area, that shaded area uh, in southeastern Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a uh, um, close-up of it. Philadelphia, the city and county of Philadelphia, is there at the right bottom right-hand corner, and then the uh, surrounding four counties. So there's five counties in this uh, um, Philadelphia area. The, that's basically the Philadelphia metropolitan area. And I've been throwing this term around small repository, and what, what do we mean by that? We have these criteria that we uh, have developed for uh, places to be eligible for the project. I will say in the outset that we're very flexible in how we apply these. Uh, there are exceptions all the time to these, but they're general guidelines on what types of organizations are eligible and what types aren't for our project. Uh, so the first is the institution has to be a private nonprofit institution whose primary mission is history related. So we're not doing public organizations, i.e. government. Uh, we're not doing for-profit organizations like businesses. Uh, and then for nonprofits, we're basically focusing on history organizations, uh, organizations that have a history-based mission. So we're not although there are many exceptions, we're not doing churches and schools and community groups uh, that might have uh, really important archival collections, but they're not in the business of collecting and preserving history. They're not, they're not history organizations uh, by their mission. Um, you cannot employ a full-time professional archivist. This is kind of obvious. Uh, if you have that, you really shouldn't need us to come in and survey your collections and tell you what you have. Uh, so th this, again, is generally focusing on smaller places that don't have professional staff. And you have to have archival collections that are available to the public. Uh, by archival, we mean documents, photo photographs, manuscripts, ledger books, diaries, scrapbooks. We're not doing published or printed, well, not, I shouldn't say printed, we're not doing published materials like newspapers or magazines or rare books, nor are we doing uh, three-dimensional objects or artwork, so paintings, furniture, those kinds of things. We're not doing that. We're doing uh, just archival materials, and they have to be available to the public in some way. Uh, a lot of the places that we work with are all volunteer. They don't have regular hours. The things are only available by appointment. That's fine as long as, in principle, if somebody goes on the website and sees a collection that you know they think would be of interest to them in their research, that they can make arrangements to use that collection. So those are the criteria, and again, uh, there's a lot of exceptions, uh, but 
I'm not going to go into them in the interest of time here. Um, but we estimate that there are about 150 to 200 such places in that five-county Philadelphia area. Historical societies, small museums, historic sites, other kinds of organizations. And um, the project is a three-phase project. We began in uh, July of 2011, and phase one was a pilot version where we just focused on two counties to get a sense of what it was going to take to do this project. And then uh, phase two, we're coming to the end of now. It, it, it wraps up at the end of next month. And um, we expanded out to the, that entire five-county Philadelphia area. And then phase three, uh, we literally just got word last week that the Mellon Foundation has approved us for funding for phase three, uh, which will be an 18-month project that will last in, through April of 2016. And in that phase, we're going to expand the project in a number of ways. We're going to continue to work within the five-county Philadelphia area, but we're going to expand the types of repositories. Uh, they, don't, they will no longer have to be history-based organizations exclusively. Uh, fraternal organizations, private clubs, churches, community groups that have important archival collections that are fairly organized and accessible to the public will be eligible for the project. So we're expanding the types of repositories within the geographic area. Uh, within that geographic area, the five counties, we're going to do more in terms of that community of practice uh, focus. We're going to present a series of workshops and training programs. We're going to work closely with these organizations. Uh, we're going to create a listserv so everybody can talk to each other. So we're going to work more closely to raise the level of stewardship of all of these organizations that we work with. And then we're going to promote the project as a national model. This issue of uh, important archival collections in small uh, volunteer-run organizations uh, is not just unique to Philadelphia, of course. It's all over the country. We think we've developed a really effective uh, approach to addressing that problem, so we're going to promote this whole initiative on a national basis. We're going to give presentations nationally, like we're doing here at AASLH. We're going to uh, work with the Heinz History Center, which is in Pittsburgh. It's the other end of Pennsylvania. We're going to train them in the project, and they're going to under hopefully undertake it in the Pittsburgh area. We might be working with New Jersey across the river from us on developing an initiative there. So we're hoping to begin to expand the reach of the project and, and start seeding it as a national initiative to uncover these hidden collections um, all over the country. So that's our plans for uh, phase three. So uh, through phase two, which we'll be wrapping up in about a month, as I said, we identified uh, 150 to 200 places that are potentially eligible. Uh, we surveyed and assessed the holdings, the archival holdings of 130 of these, and that's uh, over 1,000 individual collections within those 130 institutions, over 12,000 linear feet of materials. And then on an ongoing basis, we're, we're adding, we're creating finding aids to these collections and putting them up on this uh, searchable database, which I'll show you uh, in a little bit. Uh, these are the types of repositories that uh, we've worked with. About half of them are historical societies, and then the other half are a mix of museums, historic sites, and other types of organizations. Uh, this is a list of them by county. Um, this slide is really not meant to be read. It's more to sort of overwhelm you with how many places that we've worked with. But it's quite a number when you, when you look at them all. Um, 
so 130 at this point, and, and counting. Um, this is how they're geographically distributed across that five-county Philadelphia area, and those are color-coded. They're different colors of different types of organizations. All these graphs and things are complements of uh, Celia, who's a, who's a whiz at these types of things. Um, I mentioned that we put these finding aids uh, in a publicly accessible database. There's an organization in Philadelphia area called PACSCL, the Philadelphia Area Consortium of Special Collections Libraries. And PACSCL is a consortium of, there's 38 members at this point. These are the larger professionally managed, well-known, well-established organizations in the archival organizations in the Philadelphia area, and they have a consortium. You have to be professionally managed to be a member of this PAC school. And they've created, PAC school has created a finding aid website where all of their member organizations can contribute their archival finding aids so that a, a researcher can go to one place and search across the collections of all of these institutions at once if you're researching something, instead of going to 38 different institutions to their websites or visit them and see what they have, you can go to one place and see what everybody has. So PAC School has agreed to host the finding aids that we create in the small repositories project on that same site. So now that website is, and it's a work in progress, it's nowhere near finished, but it's being built as a repository and it's potentially going to have a finding aid to every archival collection in every historical repository in the five-county Philadelphia area. It's really going to be pretty powerful. So our finding aids that we create in the Small Repositories Project are joining the finding aids of the larger organizations into this one central repository of finding aids. Um, so that's the PACSCL website. Uh, this is our homepage on that website where we list all the repositories by county alphabetically. And then you, each of those names is a link. You would click on it. It would take you to a little blurb about that repository, who they are, what they do. And then there's a link to their website. But at the bottom of the blurb is a link to the finding aids that we create. So you can click on any place and see a description of all their archival collections. And then we also have our own project website separate from the um, from the finding aid website. This just has general information on the project, blogs, for, uh, we do a blog about it each place that we visit, and um, other information. So that's a quick um, overview of the project. And now I'm gonna turn it over to Celia, who will describe in some more detail the, the methodology and the findings of the project. Hello. Hi, um, I'm Celia. I'm the senior project surveyor on the Small Repositories Project. And today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about our methodology and the findings so far after three years and 130 repositories. Uh, first, some word about our workflow. Um, we've been to 130 repositories. About half of those have been all volunteer organizations. Um, a, a quarter of them have staff who are in a related profession, maybe they're museum professionals, maybe they have a history background, maybe they're librarians, but they don't have archival training, strictly speaking. Um, and about 13% uh, uh, of those have an archivist, a trained archivist, 
who is active either as a volunteer or on a part-time or consulting basis. But um, as you can see, staffing is, is pretty limited. Uh, however, we're able to work pretty efficiently. About 70% of the repositories were able to complete our survey work in one day. Uh, as Jack said, we are surveying archival and manuscript collections, things like diaries and letters, photographs, business records, organizational records. We do include newspaper clippings um, and subject files that are photocopied resources because we consider those to be a unique accumulation. But we don't do newspapers, whole issues of newspapers as a rule because we consider those published materials like books. Um, we also don't do um, like published annual reports for the most part, gray literature we call it. We don't survey objects and for the most part we don't survey institutional records. Um, of the organization where we're, where we're surveying. Uh, we, make an, we make an exception if they have an archives that's clearly set aside from their active records and maintained as such, but uh, in general we don't do institutional records. We've seen the entire range of scenarios in terms of storage. We've seen beautiful archival boxes and folders lined up neatly on shelves. We've also seen total disaster areas. One of the main challenges of our work is dividing up general holdings into collections. A lot of repositories think of all of their stuff as just their stuff. But as archivists, we like to break those down, we think in terms of collections. So ideally, we follow the principle of provenance, which is a core principle of archival theory. And that's the idea that you keep collections together by creator. This doesn't always make sense in the small repository context, so we don't always follow it. We have some other considerations that we keep in mind. One is the size of the collection. It's just not feasible for us to survey every photograph as a separate collection, so we set one linear foot as a cutoff for a minimum size of a collection. Um, if a collection's smaller, then that will aggregate it into a local history collection or a local business records collection, that sort of thing. Um, we take existing description into account. Sometimes it's more of a hindrance than a help to try and take these inventories and try and integrate them into our new data, but we do the best we can to do that when, when it makes sense because we want to take advantage of the work that repositories have already done and respect the intellectual arrangement that they've determined for themselves. We look to physical cues and storage locations. If there's a file cabinet and everything in the file cabinet is in similar file folders, that might very well be one collection. However, we also consider the consistency of the material. If one file drawer has newspaper clippings and the other file drawer has deeds, those are probably different collections. After we're finished surveying, we present each repository with a final report. Um, the final report has collections descriptions. We write summary finding aids, just very basic, for every single collection, over a thousand so far, and we upload those to the finding aid website that Jack spoke about earlier. We also assess each collection. This is internal only, so this isn't for public view, but it helps repositories establish internal priorities. And I'm gonna talk about, uh, about the collections assessments a bit more. We also provide a processing plan, which is the next steps to take at each repository. And we provide some 
specific, some personalized preservation priorities as well as directing repositories to more general preservation and archival information and resources. Uh, I'll say a few words about our methodology and the findings so far. Uh, the assessment results. We use a methodology that was developed at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania about 15 years ago and since has sort of become the standard, or really has become the standard um, in the archival profession. It's been used throughout the Philadelphia area at a variety of repositories, but also across the country. And if you're familiar with Archivist Toolkit, which is uh, the standard collections management program that archivists use, this methodology is actually built into that software. And it calls for assessing each collection in the, the listed areas on a scale of one to five. So it's pretty simple. We're looking at the condition of the materials. Are they yellowed, brittle, falling apart? Are they in good shape? Quality of housing. Is the collection in nice archival boxes and folders or old moldy cardboard? Degree of physical organization. Is it easy to find what you're looking for in the collection or is it a jumbled mess? And the degree of intellectual access. And this asks whether there are any existing finding aids or inventories, any tools that would tell a researcher what's in the collection before they physically come to look at it. And we rate that before and after the survey because through our work, we are creating a new finding aid that raises that score. We also look at the research value. And this is on actually on a scale of 2 to 10 because it's the sum of two subscores, interest and documentation quality. For, for e so for each collection, we consider what topics are covered in this collection. Are they topics that are likely to be of high interest to a broad number of researchers? Or is it mostly going to be limited to the local community? And we consider the documentation quality. How well are those topics documented? So for instance, if you have two Abraham Lincoln letters, those would have a high interest value because it's Abraham Lincoln, but the documentation quality would be lower because you only have two letters, so it evens out. Uh, overall, across the 130 repositories, you can see that the scores really have not been too bad. The condition of material has been about a 3.5 out of 5, quality of housing, housing 3.4, physical access 3.2, the area where we found small repositories really falling short is the intellectual access piece. That's been a 1.6 before our visit, and what that means in layman's terms is that they don't have any description at all, or any description they have is only available on site. So you wouldn't know what a repository has until you walk in the door, and sometimes even not then. So through our project, we write these finding aids, and we're able to double that score by putting the finding aids online, which is really great. This chart shows the distribution of the research value rating. And uh, you can see that about 3 quarters of the over 1,000 collections we've looked at fall in the 4, 5, 6 range of what we call high local history value, high local value. So moderate local significance, high local significance, regional significance, important to the local community, maybe not something that someone would travel across the country to use. But we have found about, uh, what's that, 16% of collections that fall in a broad-based, very broad-based exceptional range. And these are really true gems that we think 
would be of great interest to the wider research community if they only knew it was there and now through us, they will. I'll say a few words uh, in closing about our outreach activities. Jack already told you about our Finding Aid website. This is our major, our major purpose, and here are some shots sh showing our homepage. We write a bit about each repository and then also post those Finding Aids. We also uh, do a lot of social media. We write a blog about every single repository to help raise its profile, um, include its Google rankings, all that good stuff. Uh, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter page where we promote the repositories and their findings. And we also interact with the repositories in these online communities. We've also developed some resources for researchers. We have a subject guide where we highlight the collections that have the highest research value, and we organize those collections by subject area. We have a newspaper listing. As I said, we don't include newspapers in our general survey, but because they are such an important resource, especially for local history, we do have a, just a summary listing on our website where we make researchers available aware of what's available. And we have a directory on the Historical Society of Pennsylvania's website that isn't about individual collections, but is just about the repositories themselves. And we've developed resources for small repositories. As Jack mentioned, this is going to be a larger part of the coming phase three, but we've already gotten started. We have a website and um, a, a page on our website where we aggregate resources for small repositories. It's a mix of things that we have written ourselves for their use and things that we're just pointing to elsewhere online. Um, and we also are available to consult with them, answer questions. Um, we have workshops from time to time, and we've been able to provide processing help in some cases. And that's all I have time for, but I'm gonna hand it over now to Erica from Eastern State penitentiary and she's going to talk about participating in the project from the repository perspective. Hello. Um, can everybody hear me? I can't really hear myself. Uh, hello? Am I good? Okay. Um, so I'm from Eastern State Penitentiary Historic Site in uh, Philadelphia. How many of you have heard of us? Oh, a bunch. Okay, cool. How many of you have been there? A couple. How many of you heard my coworker speak this morning? Okay, good. Um, excellent, because I don't want to repeat too much information that she covered uh, this morning. Sorry. Sorry, I'm screwing everything up. No worries. Okay, um, so I'm Erica Harmon. As I said before, I'm the Senior Specialist for Collections and Administration at Eastern State. Um, so I do work with the collections. I'm basically the collections manager, but I also have the and administration part in my title. So I'm not full-time dedicated to that work. I also have um, other various responsibilities at Eastern State Penitentiary. And we are becoming known as a very large museum, but we still have a pretty small uh, but growing collection. So I'm going to start out by talking a little bit about Eastern State in general and then uh, how we relate to the project um, that Celia and Jack did. So this is our mission statement. Real briefly, um, 
We're a nonprofit, and our mission is to preserve and interpret and to place current issues of corrections and justice in a historical framework. So as I mentioned, we're in Philadelphia. Um, we're at 22nd and Fairmount, and that's just five blocks from the very famous art museum in Philadelphia. And um, we're a little bit off the grid at the top. You can see where the asterisk and they chopped off the very top part of our property, which is about 10 acres. Um, so Eastern State received its first inmate in 1829, and at that point it was actually two miles outside of the city of Philadelphia. And the prison was designed to embody this really radical idea that prisoners could be reformed and that this could be accomplished by placing inmates in individual cells separate from one another. And they were able to exercise only two half hour periods a day and the rest uh, of their time was spent in this one cell. Um, and that was thought to make them penitent, truly sorry for what they had done. Uh, this is a very early uh, site plan of the penitentiary. So this is what it looked like in the 1800s, and it was designed to house these people basically in a spaceship. All of their life support had to happen in this one room. So this is one of the very first buildings to have indoor plumbing. Uh, and in fact, Eastern State Penitentiary had indoor plumbing before the White House. And 300 prisons worldwide um, copied this design. So the system of separate confinement did not work. Um, as we all know today, that probably would not be very good for anyone's mental health. Um, and you can see in this photograph from the late 1890s that there are two people in this cell, even though separate confinement wasn't officially ended in Pennsylvania until 1913. Um, so that ended. And then they went into a system of uh, congregate prisons where People were working, bunking, eating, um, celebrating religious holidays and ceremonies together. And this is what the prison looked like by 1971. So there was quite a lot of uh, overcrowding and they built more buildings to deal with that. So the building closed as a state prison in 1971. And at that time it was sold to the city of Philadelphia, which operated it uh, for a year and then they closed it and abandoned the site. So this is what Eastern State looked like in the 1980s, uh, completely overgrown. And then a group of historians, preservationists, and community members came together to save it as a historic site. And we opened for tours in 1994. So this is what Eastern State looks like today. Um, we've halted the decay and tree growth, stabilized roofs and masonry, and the building still maintains that ambiance of a ruin that our visitors really appreciate. So uh, briefly, here are a few of our programming highlights. Um, most of our visitors tour the site using an audio guide, which is narrated by Steve Buscemi, in addition to former inmates and guards who participated in our oral history program. We also have uh, photographs on our audio player that will play uh, with the audio and show pictures of the prison. Um, here are some of our restored areas. Uh, we have Al Capone's cell. Al Capone was our most famous resident uh, in the 1920s. And we have an 1830s restored cell. We recently opened our Catholic chaplain's office, which has inmate painted murals 
and our synagogue, which we think is the first uh, synagogue in a prison in the United States. Um, those of you who are at Lauren's presentation this morning, you already know all about Terror Behind the Walls. That's our haunted house fundraiser. We open tonight. Um, so if you're in Philadelphia between now and Halloween, stop in. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about our actual collections a little bit. Um, so this is our collection storage area. It is pretty small, um, but like I said before, it's growing every year. And this room used to be a dark room in the prison. So it is kind of the perfect place for collections, nice and dark and out of the way. Um, as, as the Hidden Collections Initiative was taking shape, uh, our outreach with our collections was also gaining energy. So this image is of our pop-up museum that we had in the spring of 2013. Because the building is in such a, a state of ruin, we can't display our artifacts or archives all the time. So for 10 days, we took over our staff's conference room and displayed our objects for our visitors, and that was very popular. So we brought it back for 2014, and we plan on having another one next spring. So uh, just real quickly, here are some of our collections highlights. These three men were all wardens of Eastern State at different times. These are some guards in front of the original front gate, which was torn down in the 1930s. We also have a lot of those uh, bolts that were in the door that people kept as souvenirs and have brought back to us. And I should say that most of our collection has been donated back to us by former guards and inmates who held on to things when the prison was closing. So we sort of received everything in a jumble, um, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, this image is one of my very favorites. It's of a prisoner in the hospital. And the gentleman standing is a pretty famous boxer from the 1930s named Max Baer. And we just learned his identity last year, so that was really exciting. Uh, it, our intake office in the 1960s. Inmates and guards together in the central hub at Christmas time. And Eastern State is the largest, uh, we have the largest collection of inmate published newsletters from Eastern State. So the inmates would write the articles as well as do the physical printing. They had a, a printing shop on site. Um, and those were issued quarterly from the in the 50s and 60s. And they discussed all kinds of things that were going on in the prison, particularly sports. Um, things that were happening in the workshops and penology. Um, there were also some works of fiction and poetry. And this is another inmate uh, produced newsletter. This one was weekly and um, was published in the 19 teens. And we think we have the only remaining copies of these publications. Um, Celia mentioned a little bit about annual reports. We do have copies of all of the annual reports. We have some originals as well, um, but they're really fascinating with lots of statistics in them. They also have photographs of upgrades that were done inside the prison, so these very interesting photographs are inside those annual reports. One of our most used aspects of our collection is the inmate records. Um, so here are two intake cards of inmates from the 1920s. We also have a pretty large collection of mugshots, and this mugshot book dates from 1904 to 1906, and that is one of our uh, conservation priorities, 
and should be finished any day now. It was uh, at the Conservation Center in Philadelphia. We have these mugshots that were found on site. So when the building closed, they were just left laying around and they're also very high on our conservation priorities. Uh, parole violator posters and our oral history program is part of our collection. So we have an annual event for our alumni, um, former inmates and guards and staff members, and they come back and they talk to the public about what it was like to work and live together in, in the penitentiary. And we record that as well as having individual sessions with them. Um, we also have inmate made objects which weren't covered in the project, but they're really cool. So um, here are some carved wooden dogs, um, buttons, hat pins, inmate paintings, and of course, weapons. Um, so the Hidden Collections Initiative was really easy to participate in. I've narrowed it down to four steps. Basically, they emailed us and said, do you wanna be surveyed? Um, I met with my boss and she said, of course we do. Um, they came out, spent a day on our site conducting the survey, and then the finding aid was delivered to us. We had a chance to review it and we finalized it by putting it on both of our websites. So the best parts of participating in this project were that it was free. Um, everyone likes that. So it didn't cost us a dime and very little staff time was required. Um, I work at Eastern State every day, so it wasn't really a problem for me to meet them, but for sites that have volunteers, I'm sure that flexibility was very much appreciated. Um, our comments and suggestions about the finding aid were definitely respected by HCI and um, they incorporated all, all of that into our final product. Um, and their comments and suggestions give us some authority to make changes within our collection. And I'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's nice sometimes to have an outside group saying, here's what you need to do. And then when you tell that to the higher ups, they believe you. Um, accessibility, of course, was really great. Um, Eastern State has been growing um, as a, a historic site and a lot of people in the profession know about it. Very few people know that we have this archival collection, so getting on that network is invaluable to us. And finally, networking, getting to hang out with Jack and Celia and coming to AASLH was really great, so that was wonderful. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to rush a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so what we did after we received the finding aid was we or reorganized our website and we finished our collection policy almost at the same time as we got the finding aid from uh, the, the initiative. Um, so we, we put that onto our website and we know that we've had about 1,000 page views of this URL to date that's unique page views. So I visit this about 10 times a day. I only get counted once. Um, so hopefully uh, that is helping people find what they need on their own because we seem to still be getting the same number of requests as before, but I'm hoping that more people are getting information and just not contacting us for it. Um, so here's a graph showing our use of, of our website that has the link to the finding aid and it really picks up uh, during the spring and, 
and fall when students visit us the most and then kind of drops off in the summer, which isn't really a surprise. Um, and then there's a picture of Lauren who presented this morning for Eastern State handing out uh, finding aids at an event. So this part is what I was talking about. We used to catalog everything at the item level. So we never really made any progress because it was this very slow sort of way to go about cataloging. And we were accessioning everything, I should say foldering everything by the date that it came in. So we would have inmate intake cards mixed in with photographs, mixed in with records, and it was sort of a jumble. Um, so getting the report with the um, processing plan sort of helped us reorganize so that we could put all of the Bertillion cards, the intake cards like this one, together and then make it very simple for us to find whatever it is we need for an exhibit, for example. So that, that was our old item view. Um, so we work in FileMaker Pro. I have issues with Archivist Toolkit. Celia's promised to help me with that at some point. Um, but this is what I designed in the meantime in FileMaker Pro to sort of show that series view uh, of the collection. So this shows our Bertillion cards, intake cards, same thing, um, and a very brief overview of what that actually means. And then because I didn't want to lose all of that item level cataloging, I created a portal to link them together. So all of the items that were already in our database are linked into the series, so you can search by either one. We hope to, um, by the way, we hope to get that up on the website sometime soon. We were hoping to have it done by now, but other projects keep uh, getting in the way of that. So this is one of my favorite parts of the whole process of working with the initiative, and this was getting to know our collections better. Um, in the process of reorganizing everything, we rediscovered some things like this very beautiful newsletter from the 30s, and we think this is the only one that still exists. Um, so finding that was a great example of uh, what they've done for us. So they asked about uh, phase three and phase four, uh, if there is one, the community of practice events. What I would really like to see as part of that is the inclusion of a diverse community, large organizations, small organizations. Um, the large organizations, because uh, the smaller ones would love to see best practices happening in use and the small organizations because they can really show you some creative ideas of what can be done on a budget and also just knowing when good enough is actually good enough. Um, I would love to see as part of that behind the scenes visits. Um, those of you who got to tour the collections at the event last night know how exciting that was. Um, the the uh, historical society's collections are beautiful. Um, and I would really love to see hands-on training as well. If there were to be a phase four of cataloging, um, transcription and digitization, and I would love to see objects incorporated into the finding aids. So that is all I have time for, and I went way over. Um, but thank you, and I'll be around for questions at the end. So we have about a half an hour, and how long is your um, tips and? I was going to cut it down. Okay, to like. Well, I want to I 
collections. Okay. And of you, of the people who are here, how many of you feel like you have little to no knowledge of how to manage archives? How many of you feel like you have a pretty good idea? Okay. And how many of you feel like you're set? Okay. So. It's not very conclusive. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so Celia will give a few minutes presentation, we'll probably abbreviate it, on best practices and, and advice for managing archival collections. Maybe a better question would be to ask people, should, would you like to start a conversation now or would you like to hear about some best practices? How many people would like to launch into a conversation right now? And how many people, okay, sorry, I didn't give you enough time. And how many people would like to hear some best practices? All right. Best practices have it. So we'll we'll do a short version of that. All right. All right. Hello again. Um, what is happening? It's weird. It's not, my screen is all messed up. Okay, well, I'll just look. All right. Um, so today, uh, I'm not going to do all of this in as much detail, but I'll say a bit about concepts, fundamental concepts of archives, um, some words about preservation, description, digitization, and I'll point you to some resources in community. So um, I'm not going to have time to go through everything today, and even if I did, I'd be going through it really quickly. But the whole presentation is online, hsp.org slash hcipsar slash resources. Um, I encourage you to go there. It has this presentation, and it has a whole lot more. So that's the URL. And we have, we have cards here at the front that we can also give you. Some key concepts of archives. The main, the first thing is the difference, the focus on a collection versus individual items. This is one of the main differences between archive, archivists versus museum professionals or librarians. We think that documents make more sense in context and we also think if we were documenting every single piece of paper we would never finish. So for those reasons we focus on collections. And we like to follow the, prin the principle of provenance, as I mentioned earlier, organize those collections, or keep those collections separate by creator, and um, follow the creator's original order. Note that doesn't extend to original disorder. If there's no organizational scheme, you can impose one. So say you have the Homer Simpson papers. Um, another key concept is the idea of hierarchical organization and description. So you have your collection and you're gonna describe things that are true of that collection as a whole, but you can also break it down into series, subseries, other groups, whatever makes sense, and describe those units to whatever degree makes the most sense. Um, when you're dividing up the collection, you parse it into series, um, and this is going to depend on the collection, try and find the most organic way to do it, but common ways to do it are by document type, by the um, phase of a person's life or a business's lifespan, or by a department of a business or a person within a family. Preservation, really quickly. 
Um, you guys, uh, a lot of you work in museums, so you should know the importance of maintaining stable temperature and humidity. This is crucial for archival materials. Paper um, absorbs and exudes um, moisture, and it's bad for it over time. You probably also know the importance of using special housing, uh, acid-free archival boxes and folders. One really common mistake that we see all the time is places will, people will just put something, throw it in an archival box and figure it's fine. It's really important that papers be properly supported. So if that box is understuffed, that's bad for the papers. Um, you should fill it snugly, use a spacer if you like. You can purchase those or make them out of acid-free cardboard. Um, some top recommendations, um, use foil-backed labels. Office labels are going to fall off over time when you're labeling your boxes. Um, store shelves off the floor in case of flooding. Try and use metal shelving. Um, people often ask us, do I need to wear gloves if I'm dealing with archival materials? The answer is no. Um, if, you're using if you're holding photographs, yes, it's important. For papers, you are going to be clumsier with gloves on and you're going to do more damage through clumsiness than the oils on your skin. All right, uh, turning to description or cataloging. Um, okay, reviewing those key concepts, remember that collections are the key organize or the organizing units of archives. Collections should be provenance-based and you can describe materials um, as subseries and other units within a collection hierarchical. In practical that terms, that means that when you're cataloging, you should start by creating a record for each collection as a whole, and then use lower-level description as necessary. Metadata. This is a term you may or may not be familiar with. It literally means data about data, but in practical terms, it means the descriptions of your papers, objects, whatever. What's the title? What are the dates? What's the location? That sort of thing. And uh, structured, standardized metadata helps ensure that your materials are findable by researchers and shareable with other computer systems. In this example, if I was only looking for photos of BART, if I have that more detailed, structured metadata, and the second example there, I could do a search just on the title field and restrict my results that way. It's, it's more efficient. Uh, there are uh, different types of metadata standards that archivists talk about. Um, content standards are what types of information should I include? Is it important that I give the location? Is it important that I give the date? Is it important that I give the title? That sort of thing. Um, to get into then, but then there are these other types. There is um, value standards, so that's exactly what term do I need to use? And format standards, how do I represent or encode that data. So for content standards, archivists follow DAX, which is describing archives a content standard. If you're interested in learning what archivists use, um, you can get that for free from the Society of American Archivists website. There's a link there. And those are the key fields that are necessary for a collection, and there are additional optional ones. Value standards, the reason this is important, if someone is researching World War II, they could type in all these different search terms, and if different materials are described in different ways, they won't be able to find them all in one place. But if everyone is using the same terms, you can make sure you get all the search results that you want. 
and you may be familiar with this if you use channels, channels, nomenclature, it's the same idea. Um, format standards, you may be familiar with MARC, which is what librarians use, machine readable cataloging. Archivists have our own format standard. It's called EAD, encoded archival description. Oh, but a key idea here is if your data is structured, no matter what format you use, so like if you have it in a spreadsheet, um, or you have it in MARC, or you have it in Dublin Core, or you have it in EAD, the important thing is that it's structured because then you can use a computer program to say, well, find all of those titles and re-encode them into this format, but um, a computer can translate it if it's in a structured way where it couldn't translate it if it was just written free text. Um, some common computer programs for cataloging, which should you use? Uh, it depends on your needs. Um, Pass perf or um, word processor, I guess, is first. Uh, you probably already have it. It's very easy to use. You can. It's it's not structured, which is um, a downside, but it also gives you a lot of freedom um, to do whatever hierarchical description you want. Um, but it's not it's not integrated into a collections management system. Pass perfect. We're at ASLH. ASLH endorses Pass perfect. Um, it has a, good, a lot of benefits, but it's not a perfect program. Um, it's fairly easy to use. It has a structured format, but it's not the format that archivists prefer, EAD. And it does allow you to do some hierarchical description, but it's not, it's not perfect. If you're just adding one level of description, that's pretty easy and straightforward. But if you want to add more than one level, if you want series and subseries and files, it's a little clunky. Um, it's not terribly expensive, but there is a cost associated with it, but you get a whole package that does lots of other things. Um, archivists use either Archivist Toolkit, which has been the standard for the past few years and is now being uh, gradually replaced by Archive Space. Um, it's a little more difficult to use and install, but it is completely free. Uh, both of those programs are free. Um, although you can pay, f you can get a paid version of Archive Space that has more support and features. It has unlimited hierarchical description, which is great. It has the standard format archivists use, EAD, which is great. And it's an integrated catalog with all of your collections and your accessions in one place. Uh, this is what a collection record looks like in Past Perfect if you've never used it. Um, and the, there are those two options. Um, you can use the container list option or the linked records option, and they each have their advantages or disadvantages. Uh, the container list only has limited metadata fields. You can see it, you only have like seven choices, but it's very easy, um, but you can only use the one level. Um, if you want to do linking records, you start a new catalog record, just like at your collection level, you have all of the available fields in Past Perfect, and then you link using that multi-level linking level of description, but it's a little confusing. The printed report's a little confusing. It's not great. This is what Archivist Toolkit looks like. Uh, the best, one of the best features of it on the left, you can see that hierarchy tree, and you can also see there's a button export EAD, which is my favorite button. Archive space has a different look, but again, you can see it has that hierarchy tree that we're really looking for as archivists. Word processor, you can do whatever you want. This is an example of one finding aid. 
um, in a word processor. Um, if you want to write your own finding aid for a collection, um, we have some resources on our website or some tools, I guess, that would be helpful to you. Um, there's this Word document you can download and use, and it specifies for you all of those metadata, con the content standards, all those metadata fields that are really important for a collection. So that's just something really easy. You can fill it on the computer, you can print and give to a volunteer, and they can just fill in those forms. If you use the doc version of this, it has an inventory list so you can do whatever hierarchy you want, but it's not going to be in EAD, that standard. We also have an Excel version on our website, which doesn't have the inventory list option, but it will encode automatically into EAD for you, if that's something you're looking for. All right, digitization, hot topic. Um, it's really important that you make sure you have the rights to an image before you put it online. You may or may not know that, know this about things that are already in your possession, but I would stress to you, if your donor form does not right now have a copyright statement, you should put one in. Make sure that when people are donating items to you, they're saying in that form, yes, I have the copyright to this, and yes, I'm giving it to you, so that you can put things online without worry. When you're scanning, there are a lot of different standards. It depends on many things, the size of the original object, all that sort of thing. But in general, you should be covered if you're scanning a 400 DPI, 24-bit um, color, and a TIFF. It's important to have a master version of your scan that is unedited, that you store in at least two different locations for security. You can have an additional JPEG version that is just for use, but it's important to have that master file. Uh, metadata, it's important with items as well as collections. Um, here are some common programs that are easy to use. Omeka is a great one. There's a free version. You can pay for a paid version that has a hosted website and a few other features. It's great for exhibitions. It's pretty easy to use. ViewShare is also a totally free program. Um, it's also pretty easy to use. It has great data visualizations, so you can make a map out of all, if you have um, locations encoded, if you add locations with your items, you can make a map out of it if you have time. If you have years, you can make a timeline out of it. It's really great for those. PassPerfect, um, a lot of people are already using PassPerfect, uh, but you can pay extra for an uh, online exhibit module. It's really easy to use. There's a, just a checkbox that you can press that will um, make things show up in an online, in an online website. All right, and that's, I'm going to wrap it up, but um, if you want to learn more, as I said, our website, I would say, is the first place I would tell you to go, hsp.org slash hcipsar slash resources. And uh, here are some resources that I would highlight for you. Um, in particular, there are some uh, books at the bottom. The David Carmichael book is great for organizing and describing archival collections. That Archives for the Layperson um, is a great guide that has built-in past-perfect instructions if you're already using past-perfect. And uh, The Lone Arranger is a great guide that covers specifics about um, arrangement and description as well as more institutional questions about fundraising and managing volunteers and all that sort of thing. All right. Roland. Okay. 
So we have about 15 minutes for questions, and we have, a, remember, this session is being recorded, so your questions will have to be um, directed into the microphone. So we have somebody over here. <laughs> Maybe we'll try to do it by section so she doesn't have to run all around. I know she kind of mentioned this as a, a goal um, that you wanted, not so you have it. Okay. Is there a plan to add a digitization co component to this to, so that these archives could be ready, readily available for people who, say, can't come to the, I mean, is there any like, uh, statewide digitization project? In Texas, we have one, and it's phenomenal. Um, that all these archives across the state are coming along and it's got one housing. Is that something that y'all are thinking of in the future uh, we've with the project? Dis discuss we've, uh, the, the question again is digitization. We've discussed it in very, very general terms as a possible follow-up project in the future. The first priority was to just find out what's out there in terms of all these collections. And then uh, Celia was describing how we uh, assess their historical significance, their research value. So we could, we now know these are all the collections that are out there. Th this is the creme de la creme. These are the really important collections. We know what they are. We know how big they are. We know, you know what they cover, what their uh, quantity is. So we could develop a proposal to to say digitize the best collections. Um, we haven't made any decision to do that. It's a possibility that we're, we're now looking at you know completing phase three and somewhere in the course of phase three we'll talk about maybe a later phase that would include digitization. But there are no firm plans to do that. Yeah. Oh, well, she, just because she's closer. <laughs> Um, you talk about copyright. How about privacy issues with like the the inmates information is there a privacy issue with those that is a really great question it's something that we have been talking a lot about and we're working on that um, at some point we want to have a, a policy for our organization because it's not clear to us as a staff what is okay to share and what is not so um, yes I think it is an issue and it's one we haven't resolved yet And, and I will say that um, with all the repositories that we work with, it's not our job to tell them what policies they should enact. In other words, they each have their own uh, policy, or they should have their own policy about privacy. We don't want to come in and say, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. So we do, we do advise them on things like that, but we don't sort of dictate because these are each institution that works with us is its own institution. We're just making the collections descriptions available. So it's up to them to have their own policies about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious about the scope. Are, are you physically arranging these collections? Are you putting no. things together by provenance? We're not. We're not physically doing anything. It's all intellectual description and assessment. So we don't. We don't do any reorganizing physically of collections. I mean, there have been a few exceptions to that. Um, one place is, the, re the main reason we don't do it is because we don't want to go in there and rearrange things so they can't find them. A few, in a few instances, places have told us, please, please help us. And so we'll, we'll do a little bit of that. Um, and we have undertaken a few processing projects um, where we are taking a collection and, and completely rearranging it, rehousing it, and describing it.
Hi. How did you identify these tiny repositories, and did were they excited to have you come, or uh, re resistant, or how uh, did that work? Well, I'll answer the first part of your question is there's no magic formula for finding these places. It's just old-fashioned, you know, web searches and phone calls and word of mouth. And each place that we would visit, we would say, do you know any other historical societies or, you know, historic sites in the area? So it was, you know, just sort of using all the sources we could to, to identify them. So that's the first question. And the second part, you know, how excited were they? Overwhelmingly, they were all eager uh, to participate in the project. It's, you know, it's a great benefit. It doesn't cost them anything. And uh, there have been a few that have been a little resistant. Sometimes they're concerned that they're all volunteer. They don't have the staff or the resources or the volunteers. If they were to get uh, flooded with research requests as a result of their collections being online, uh, that's been a concern that's been expressed. But um, we can tell them from experience that putting their collections descriptions online has not resulted in a tidal wave of research requests. So uh, overwhelmingly, the, the places are eager and willing to work with us. There have been a few, a very small number, that have resisted, but that's really just a, a, a fraction of, of, of the total number. Yeah. This is a question for Celia. Uh, I was curious as to... Um, why um, archive space is now replacing archivist toolkit? I ask myself that question every day. Um, so, in the archives field, there are two. There were two programs: um, archivist toolkit and Archon, and they each had strengths and weaknesses. And so. Um, the idea was to develop a new program that would integrate the best features of both and would also be cloud-based and have various other features. So um, it was, they've been working on it for uh, several years and they rolled out the first version of it um, in like November. Um, but it's, unfortunately, it's not fully developed yet. Um, I, so like the Historical Society of Pennsylvania has not transitioned to it yet. I would guess that within the next maybe five years, I think archive space will be the standard, but it's not, it's not yet. Um, privacy. I don't know if you've covered that because I've been behind a column, but um, I'm from a community which, uh, because I've had done so many oral interviews over the last 45 years, uh, I've discovered how many people drank Sterno, how many people, you know, drank formaldehyde, and how many people have died for other reasons or other causes, or just disappeared because they didn't want their wives to find them. So uh, should this be considered part of history of a community or should it be uh, left unrecorded? I think it's important to record history as it happens. Um, I, think it's, I think it's important to respect um, individual privacy, certainly for the duration of a person's life and perhaps for a grace period after that, but 
uh, I think history is in history and it, it happened and it's true and it's important that people, that we don't sugarcoat the past but allow future generations to discover it as it really, as it really was. So um, with sensitive records, we, will, we typically advise, and as Jack said, we don't dictate to them what to do, but if we find small repositories that have sensitive issues like that, we typically advise them to keep those records closed for a period of 50 years or 80 years or 100 years, whatever they're comfortable with, until they can be sure that anyone who's mentioned in the records has passed away and close relatives of them maybe also passed away. But then I think it should be open You're asking a more fundamental question than this project can address. We're surveying the collections that have been collected or created at these repositories. We're not creating the collections or determining what history should be documented and what shouldn't. So each individual community or, in, or institution collects what it collects or creates what it creates, and then we go in and survey it. So we're not involved in determining what gets saved and what doesn't. We're just documenting what's out there. So it's really beyond our you know, responsibility or our focus to sort of tell places what should be collected or what should be documented and what shouldn't. We might have opinions like Celia just expressed, but we don't sort of see it as our role to uh, get involved in that. So. Just to follow up on my rather negative, you know, comments about some of the characters that I've known and met, or at least heard of, uh, I do have something I'd like to pass out to people um, who are interested in a, oh, the title is A Slice of Serenity, uh, and it the, the community that, of which I'm a part of has gone through a period of great depression, both physically and mentally, and uh, almost obliterated. And the city planners felt it wasn't worth saving. And now it's become almost... Well, can I, can I just jump in? It's, it, you're getting kind of way off to topic for this project. Okay. I mean, right. it's really not kind of relevant. If to anybody's interested, you can see me after the meeting. Yeah, okay. Over here. Hello. I'm just looking for some advice. Um, a small museum contacted me wanting help with their archives, but they had put everything on their walls or in cases, and they had no records of who donated everything and when. How would you organize that uh, the museum's collections? Well, the first thing I would do is establish a policy for the future, um, but <laughs> so that that doesn't happen again. Um, but we uh, archivists make a distinction between uh, provenance-based collections, which I spoke about already, and what we call assembled or artificial collections. So I would probably describe this as the museum's. Maybe it's a local. Is it a local history museum or a subject-based? 
okay it's a it's a town's local history museum so i would probably call it such and such town local history collection and describe those you know they have 10 linear feet of photographs and letters and such and such that all relate to the history of the town and then in the provenance note you would specify these materials come from a variety of sources maybe they're arranged by subject we find that a lot that is the the vast majority of collections that we find maybe one more question um, if you want to come up and speak to any of us we'll be here and we have um, a handout about our project um, we'd love to The one thing I would like to close with is, as I mentioned, uh, we're trying to promote this project as a national model. And if anybody is interested in trying to undertake something similar or vaguely related in their part of the world, uh, we would love to sort of uh, work with you on that and, and sort of help to um, promote that and nurture that. So please feel free to contact us and our cards and everything are up here if you'd like to um, see if you could do something similar in your, in your communities. Okay, thanks. <laughs>